Good evening. Um, every Christmas, my university friends and I meet up for Secret Santa. It started um, in halls 19 years ago, this tradition. We used to draw names out of a hat so we knew who we had to buy for. But now we don't see as much of each other. We use the Secret Santa name generator, which gets emailed to us. Um, Kate and I live the closest to each other. She just lives in Molsey, uh, and we see the most of each other. Um, and so some years when we've not drawn each other from Secret Santa, uh, but we still see something that we think the other would like, we still get each other a bit of something uh, if we're not able to give that in Secret Santa. So one year, uh, Kate got me this fridge magnet, which was staring at me as I wrote this talk um, from my pen holder on my desk. Uh, and it's got a quote on it from uh, Virginia Woolf. Some people go to priests, it says, others to poetry, I to my friends. Um, and she said it made me think of, uh, it made her think of me because she said, you go to all three. Uh, I do like, uh, obviously, church, poetry, and my friends. Um, this year, she got me um, uh, a coaster that says, uh, my book club reads between the wines. I don't know what she meant by that one. Um, uh, I was quite apprehensive, still am, about speaking tonight. Um, but when I saw that the theme was friendship, um, I felt compelled to. Um, the thing is, it's been friendship that um, has been my life jacket in times in my life when I felt like I was drowning. It's friendship that seven and a half years ago, when I walked through those doors at the back at St. John's, um, completely broken by the ending of my marriage, um, that made me come back a second week, and then a third week, and here I am seven and a half years later. Um, and it was my friendships here that... Um, helped me to grow and nurture my faith from what felt like a withered plant destined for the bin to something that could flourish and flower once more. And so talking here tonight at St. John's is about friendship um, on our uh, new series on relationships is a total privilege. Um, it's also such an important theme. When we go right back to the beginning of Genesis, um, even before sin is mentioned, the first not good thing to be flagged up um, is is being alone, it's not good for man to be alone. Meaning that in his perfect creation, his perfect world, God quickly realized that when he created the first human, Adam, Adam would need company, he'd need companionship. We're not designed for a solitary life. It's not good to be alone. Um, I listened to the Bible in one year um, by um, HGB and Nikki Gumbel, and um, uh, there was one on friendship a, a while ago, and um, it started with um, this kind of statistic um, at the beginning, um, which I'll just read to you. Uh, the UK retail uh, chain Topshop commissioned a survey by a team of psychologists into their key customer demographic, Generation Y, and that's um, people who were born from 1981 to sort of the early 2000s. They interviewed 800 people, and the results were so staggering that they did the whole research again and interviewed another 800 people because they just didn't believe the results, and they got the exact same results again. Um, the results portrayed an alarming picture of an increasingly lonely and lost generation. Um, more people live alone uh, um, than at any other point in our recorded social history. Um, and many who were interviewed um, said that they you know, had a large number of friends but felt an increasing sense of loneliness. Um, so friendship's really the antidote to loneliness. To help us explore the theme of friendship, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. Uh, we're just going to dip into it, um, where um, we see the, the friendship of Ruth and Naomi, um, and that's really at the heart of this, this story. So um, the book of Ruth starts on page uh, 267 of the Church Bibles, if you want to grab one, or if you've got a Bible up on your phone, we're just going to start at the beginning of Ruth. 
So that's 267 if you want a church Bible, 267. So the book of Ruth uh, begins with a family moving from Bethlehem um, in, Judea, in Judah to escape famine. It must have been really desperate um, for them to uproot to Moab because Israel and Moab were enemies. So the Moabites had refused Israelites' passage through their land during the exodus from Egypt. And Moab was one of Israel's oppressors during the time of Judges, which is when the events in this story happen. Uh, so we'll start from the beginning of Ruth. Naomi loses her husband and sons. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So when Naomi's husband um, and sons died in Moab, the three widows were left in an extremely vulnerable position. Naomi in particular was in a foreign land. Naomi had no male relatives in Moab, so no one to take care of her. And without the legal and economic rights of their husbands, no land or resources, the, woman, the women would have been really easy targets for exploitation and mistreatment. Naomi would have had a difficult choice. Stay in Moab with no support and risk falling into poverty, or move back to Bethlehem where her daughters-in-law would be widows and aliens there. It was possibly the news that there was a famine, that the famine had lifted in Bethlehem that persuaded her to make the move back. Naomi wasn't a young woman, and the journey would be difficult, um, rough terrain around the southern end of the Dead Sea, but she decided to make that journey. So we'll just go back to the passage. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So she knew it would be easier for her daughters-in-law if they stayed in, the homeland, in their homeland with their families. So she urged them to stay at home with their, with their own mothers and prayed that both of them would find a Moabite husband as this would be necessary for their economic survival. So she says to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. When Naomi first told the daughters-in-law to return to their families, they both refused. And Naomi kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But she insists, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried to their, uh, for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed their mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And then we get this really beautiful speech from Ruth, who's clearly more than just the daughter-in-law. She's no duty to be loyal anymore. In fact, you know, mother-in-law's just given her the kind of get out and said like, you know, the other daughter-in-law is going to go back. So 
you, you could go back. Um, it makes no sense for her to stay with, with Naomi at all, but her faithfulness is that of a true friend. So she says, um, this is Ruth, um, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So the first thing that we can learn from this section of passage is that true friendship is sacrificial. It, it means getting in the pit when someone's going through a tough time. You know, Ruth says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Ruth has no obligation to stay, but she sees Naomi's bleak situation. She's poor, she's got zero status, she's a foreigner in the land she's come to call home, she's a widow, she's grieving the loss of her husband and two sons. We've heard this phrase, like being in the pits, it means sort of the darkest time in life when everything seems to be going wrong. And Naomi must have been experiencing real pain, despair, loss, disappointment, and even anger at God, um, she was really in the pit. And rather than Ruth saying goodbye and wishing her well, as she really could have done, um, she gets into the pit with her and stands in the mess. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. When I think back to my friendships during university and, and school before then, the only real trials that we kind of faced were about meeting deadlines for assignments or revising for exams, trying not to go over our overdraft limits, who to share a house with at university. But over the last 20 years, as we've got deeper and deeper into this adult world, the trials have become more life-changing, broken off engagements, failed marriages, infertility, miscarriages, diagnosis of life-limiting conditions, parents becoming ill, parents dying. The stuff of the pit is hard. And there's pain there to, to hide, and there's pain to hide from, or there's pain we can share. And sharing the pain by no means removes it. Um, but what I've discovered is it brings about an intimacy to friendships that didn't exist before, or not to the same extent. It strengthens and it bonds. For me, having friends join me in the pain has been um, the ladder out of the pit or has become a party in the pit, <laughs> um, a place where tears of pain can be turned to tears of joy. When we're a true friend to others, not leaving someone in their time of despair might be the single most important thing we ever do. Not leaving someone might be the most important thing we ever do. Often, though, it can be hard to be alongside friends as they experience times of illness, bereavement, depression, when they're hurting, angry, and upset. Speaking personally, I know there have been times when my life's been hard that I've not always been an easy friend to love. 
I've pushed people away, or I've bitten back when friends have tried to tell me it'll all be okay. And I can actually re relate to Naomi's kind of cup half empty responses. You know, when she's saying, no, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, um, because the Almighty has, has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. The Lord's afflicted me. The Almighty's brought misfortune upon me. And I, I have been that person. Um, I remember a time when I'd gone for dinner with my best friend, Marie. Um, I was really hurting and really angry with God. And she was trying to reassure me, uh, telling me that this pain um, that I was feeling wouldn't last and that, you know, that I would be okay. And you know, I remember sort of standing in the street and like half shouting, like, how do you know? How do you know I'll be okay? You don't know that I might never be okay. And, um, you know, it sounds ridiculous and dramatic now, but I really felt that. I really felt like, you know, you don't know that. I, you know, you don't know my pain's going to go. Um, you know, I was, I was taking out all my frustration or my bitterness or my disappointment on her because she loved me and she wasn't going to leave me. Um, Marie's been my best friend since we met on a youth weekend, actually, um, in Bolton, age 13 and 14, which is why I just love, you know, the fact that St. John's does this stuff, because, it, it, you know, it's been so important for me. Um, we'd just moved to the church, and uh, Dad had just become a curate there. I didn't know anyone. I really wasn't up for this weekend, if I'm honest. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to, you know, know the people on the, on the, on the trip, and, um, yeah, I wasn't, wasn't really feeling it. But I sat next to Marie on the coach, um, and we got talking. And actually, we, we didn't stop talking the whole weekend. Um, and this quote from C.S. Lewis, um, who actually talks a lot about friendship, um, really makes me think of Marie. He says, but in friendship, we think we've chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, uh, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, posting to different regiments, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. I just love that. I think it's a beautiful statement about Christian friendship, and I, I feel the same about people in this room. Um, Marie and I have lost touch with each—we we lost touch with each other at university. We went to different universities and, and a year apart. But I really believe the Lord orchestrated our kind of reunion several years later, when actually things had sort of gone wrong in her life that sort of brought us back together. Um, and we both say we've saved each other a fortune in therapy over the years because the amount we've talked to each other. Um, but, you know, being the friend who gets into the pit like, like she's done many times and says, where you go, I will go. Where you um, lodge, I will lodge. Uh, takes selflessness, courage, and resilience, um, especially when you're being pushed away. But when we take the time, when we sacrifice hanging out with the more easygoing friend or just doing something else that we'd rather be doing, frankly, um, to be with the friend who's going through the trials, we're really demonstrating the love of God um, and the love he has for us when he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, in Hebrews. And I think this is like a mirrored kind of uh, phrase there. Um, that's no accident. The second thing we learn from this friendship is that true friendship is being real with each other. When Naomi says, um, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty's made my life very bitter, um, 
actually, you know, she's, she's not putting a brave face and disguising her feelings. Um, she's being honest about her bitterness, her grief, and her misfortune. And it's really important that we link up with people who we can be real with. Um, and there's no better place for that than, than here at church. You know, Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Um, and, it, you know, this is the place we can be completely real without fear of, of condemnation. And in being real and vulnerable with each other, we're able to share the load and pray for each other and offer support. And this is the kind of thing we can do in prayer triplets or um, in our connect groups. In Galatians 6.2, we're instructed to carry each other's burdens. And this is right in the middle of the passage about being accountable to each other. Uh, Verse 1 has just said, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. When we're real with each other, we can not only share times of sadness, but also struggles with sin. I meet with a wonderful group of women um, here at St. John's every couple of weeks, and we share our lives, and we share our struggles, and we're honest about things we're finding difficult. I remember one particular week, I remember really clearly my flat talking about, um, I think it was me mainly saying this, like, um, I struggle not to join in with gossip. Um, you know, that if gossip's going on around me, like in the staff room or something, I struggle to be the person who doesn't join in. Um, you know, and a few of us were sort of joining and saying, yeah, I struggle with that as well. And it's, you know, it's important that we can be honest about that and share that and pray for each other. Equally, it's, it's good to link up with friends to share hopes and dreams. Um, Caroline and I um, meet up every so often um, to, you know, touch base and review our, our list. We made a list uh, inspired by Archie Coates at Focus um, with our big ticket items, if anyone was there at Focus. Uh, it's basically a list of things that we'd like answered prayer to before the next Focus. Um, and we just meet up to check in and see, see how those things are going uh, and to keep praying for each other about them. Um, we text um, prayers and Bible verses, words of encouragement in the meantime as well. And um, the thing is about this is that, you know, it can mean being vulnerable, um, and that's quite difficult um, because we sort of feel like we're exposing ourselves. But again, back to C.S. Lewis, he said uh, this beautiful thing about, um, about this kind of friendship and vulnerability, which I think is just a, a beautiful literary passage as well as being um, just so spot on. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. For in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. And the third point is that true friendship breaks um, boundaries of age, religion, race. Your people shall be my people, is what Ruth says to Naomi. Um, Naomi was a Hebrew woman who emigrated to Moab with her husband and two sons from a home in Bethlehem. And other than being widows and related by blood or marriage to Naomi's son, the pair had very little in common. These two women were of different ages, races, and even religions. Yet somehow, they built this strong and lasting friendship. A friendship that went deeper than just mother and daughter-in-law, uh, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. They were really there for each other. 
it's no secret that the, that the world we live in now is quite a divided one. Um, you know, it's very easy to offend when there's such sort of uh, big issues at stake at the moment. It's easy to sort of stick to our own, just be surrounded by people who have the exact same views as us. Um, but we're encouraged in this passage uh, not to let seeming differences prevent deep friendship. And it reminded me of this passage from Luke, Luke 14, chapter 7 to 14. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And I think we're challenged in the, um, in the story of Ruth and Naomi to be a bit bolder in who we befriend. Um, when we listen to the words of Jesus, he says to welcome the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. In other words, the outcasts. For some of us, this might literally challenge us to invite people for dinner who we normally wouldn't. For others, it might be a challenge to talk to people we wouldn't normally talk to at work, college, university, in a social group, um, school playground, just someone we wouldn't normally approach and have a conversation with. Um, I'm trying to do this at the moment with um, a neighbor of mine who I don't know very well, but I've invited her for dinner and she invited me for dinner. I'm just trying to kind of get to know her because I know she's on her own. Um, and I'm just trying to kind of practice that. And it's actually been really lovely. Um, so I would recommend it. Um, in Andy and Shackety's Connect Group, the other week we looked at um, the adulteress who washes his feet with her hair, um, much to the horror of the Pharisees. But what Jesus wanted then and wants from us now is um, to see people beyond labels, uh, to really see them. Um, we're all created in God's image and no one's unworthy of God's love. It's our job to demonstrate this love um, and this truth by our actions. On my first Sunday here, seven and a half years ago, I sat alone, in, this shows how long it is, uh, in a pew. <laughs> I was sat in a pew at the back, um, and I sobbed throughout a video that was playing. I can't even remember what the video was, um, but a young woman shuffled along the pew, put her arm around me as I bawled my eyes out. Um, that woman was um, Lorna Wilkinson, who some of you might know. Um, she, they've left to go up north now as a family, but um, you know, she, she let me be herself. Um, with no judgment, she listened, um, she gave me a time, she encouraged me, she prayed for me, she invited me back, then she invited me for dinner, and then she invited me to join the connect group that was starting up, um, and she kept me plugged into church when I was all over the place, and trust me, it would have been so easy to say, really nice to meet you today, and I've just left and, and never like picked that up because, you know, it wasn't massively easy to kind of befriend um, but uh, in that first conversation we, we established that we were from neighboring towns um, in Lancashire Bolton and Ramsbottom um, and we, we knew the same person her ex-boyfriend and I went to the same school although we quickly established that we weren't in the same year at school I actually taught him because I was a few years older so, um, so um, but um, you know it, it wasn't quite the same age gap as Ruth and Naomi but again it could have deterred her from be, being friends with me because she might have thought oh quite a bit older than me I'm not really your friend material um but um instead she really sort of took my hand and kind of uh, led me back into being completely plugged into a church um and and helped lead me back to the god I'd been quite angry about <laughs> angry at um and she helped me to reconcile lo lots of issues and to, to grow in my faith which brings me on to my next point 
true friendship brings us and our friends closer to God. Um, your God might will be my God. Um, even though Naomi is having a really rough time and she feels kind of punished by God, Ruth still wants to like follow her faith, still wants to adopt this God. Um, so what does this tell us about Naomi? Well, you know, she, she must have been a pretty awesome mother-in-law and she must have, you know, been exuding some kind of passion about, about this God because Ruth wants to accept her God as, you know, her own. So um, Naomi must have done a decent job of showing God's love to Ruth. She leads Ruth to the Lord whether or not she intended to or not. So no matter where we are in, in life or where we stand with our faith, we do have the opportunity to bring um, others and ourselves closer to God perhaps through showing real friendship. Ruth and Naomi set a wonderful example um, to us by having the shared love of God at the heart of their friendship. Even those we're reaching out to who don't know God yet, we can still share our relationship with him, with those people. I remember when um, Dad, who's here um, tonight, had his heart attack um, a couple of years ago, and we had friends up and down the country praying for him um, when that happened. You know, at first, the, the WhatsApps were basically praying that he'd survive it. Um, and then when a blood clot um, was lodged on his brain and he couldn't speak or recognize his family, um, we sent sort of SOS texts to our friends praying for, like, a miraculous healing. Um, and then when the miracle happened and the blood clot moved and seemingly disappeared in 45 minutes, the fact that our Christian friends had been praying and then this miracle had happened um, meant that we were able to share that story with our non-Christian friends. The doctor looking after him actually said, like, I can't explain this. This, this is a miracle. And we were like, it's God. <laughs> Everyone's been praying. So, um, you know, the fact we could say that um, to, to our non-Christian friends really kind of helped us to share um, God's love. And then my final point is that true friendship has uh, balance. When Ruth and Naomi get to Bethlehem, they end up working in the fields belonging to a man named Boaz, who's a relative of Naomi's husband. Boaz is really kind to both the women, and he says to Ruth in chapter 2, verse 8, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water that, that, um, that the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your own father and mother in your own homeland, and you came to live with a people that you didn't know. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So Naomi had obviously put in a good word for Ruth because he knew all about this. Um, so she can see the two are getting on and she suspects they might be a good match. So Naomi kind of repays Ruth's friendship and support by becoming a wing woman, um, which is, if you don't know the phrase, is a, <laughs> a friend who kind of accompanies their friend um, to offer support, especially in flirting with a love interest. And they can be a bit of a matchmaker, so she sort of plays that role. She goes further than putting in a, just a good word. She starts to offer guidance and advice to Ruth. Uh, so this is some mother-in-law setting up her daughter-in-law. Um, seems to have given her a new purpose and sort of lease of life. Um, so just go to um, verse 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. 
wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Sounds like quite a strange act, <laughs> but um, it seems to work in bringing the, the pair closer together. And Naomi's there like a good friend to ask, how did it go, my daughter? Um, I'm just sort of skipping on a bit now. Later, Boaz announced to all the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malam. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malam's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name, of the, his, the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. And skipping on a bit more. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth's loyalty, faithfulness, and sacrificial, to friendship, uh, sacrificial friendship to Naomi was rewarded in ways she probably never imagined. Naomi had been broken by the deaths of her sons and her husband. She wanted to be called bitter, yet Ruth stuck by her, and together they rebuilt their lives. Naomi's restoration from this angry, bitter woman not only enables her to be joyful again, but also to demonstrate the kind of care that Ruth had shown to her. Her determination to see her settle with a good man, and specifically Boaz, um, you know, isn't just because she wants Ruth to be happy, but because she knows that at this time, you know, the women would have just struggled without the financial help and stability of a man. And in Boaz, they've got someone who's not only compassionate, um, but who sees Ruth's good qualities, um, and, you know, he really respects um, you know, the, the, the men that they've lost in, in the way that he deals with the property and so on. So I wanted to sort of mention the way that Ruth ends because I think that that, that final sort of act, um, you know, suggests that final thing about friendship, that it's not one-sided, it's reciprocal. You know, if you've been the friend who's done more of the taking, um, you've had a period of take, 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 and you know that that's you, remember that once Naomi had been helped by Ruth and um, once her strength was regained, she became the help for Ruth and sort of set Ruth up um, on her sort of new life journey. So for me, the ultimate command that sort of summarizes all, all of this talk is um, from John. Um, and, th and this is the sort of ultimate command about friendship. John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And how do we do that? Being sacrificial, getting into the pit, even when it's tough to get in there with your, your friend who's, who's going through a trial. Being real with each other, not being afraid to be vulnerable. Being free of boundaries that might normally put you off making friends. You know, being bolder about who we, who we befriend bringing ourselves and others closer to God in the way we kind of talk about God with our friends and finally maintaining that, that kind of balance so that you're not just sort of taking from your friends but you're, you're giving and you see it as a sort of two-sided um, relationship. Amen. Let us um, just uh, stand and um, I'll just pray.